The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Well, yes, it is indeed The Enviro Show with me, Nancy Richards, also with Kim Winter and Lon Wabofani. And we have you and what we also have in the lineup tonight. Let me take you from the top. Cosmologist. Cosmologist Michelle Knights recently came back from the UK where she was representing South Africa in the International FameLab competition with her presentation on the use of pulsars to demonstrate gravitational waves. Well, we look forward to finding out exactly what that means. After that, after the mines. Well, what indeed after the mines? We're going to be talking to a British photographer, Jason Larkin, who in fact lives in uh, South Africa, but he is presently in the UK. And he's going to be telling us a little bit about his book of the same name, After the Mines, in which he explores Johannesburg's infamous, infamous mine dumps and looks at their environmental legacy, amongst other things. And then Green Sabenza, well, this is the good news. It's a project that's recently been launched by the Minister of Environmental Affairs, Edna Malewa. It was recently launched and it's aimed at unlocking the potential benefits of a green economy. And in these days of unemployment, that can only be a good thing. We'll be talking to the project manager, Donovan Fullard. And then the T2T, Titsukama to Tatooine uh, expedition. Tatooine, I bet you don't know where that is. Well, I do now, and you'll have to wait and find out if you don't know exactly where it is. Well, it's an expedition that's happening later on in the year, and what they're looking to do is make a difference one school food garden at a time, also amongst other things. We'll be chatting to Tracy Angus Hammond, who's going to be on the expedition, and she's got all the details. And then finally, last but not least, in our green goodie slot, as you know, we have a green goodie slot each and every week. And if you'd like to tell us what uh, you're doing that's green and good, whether it's a product or a service or whatever it may be, you can let us know. We're at enviro at safm.co.za. Or you can find us on Facebook. It's The Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, on eco-info, absolutely we don't have any eco-info, but uh, as you heard there in the news uh, on the N2 here in Cape Town, there are people demonstrating with human waste once again and uh, charges for the people who've been strewing human waste around. And the issue of it seems to be spreading all over Cape Town. And on that, in fact, we had hoped to get ourselves a microbiologist or similar on the show to give us an idea of just how risky this practice might be in terms of the spread of disease. So far, we were unable to find anybody. But if you've got any thoughts on that, or maybe you'd like to know a little bit more about how dangerous it could be in terms of our health and the environment, and you've got somebody who you think might uh, be able to help, give us a call. You can phone us right now, if you like, 0892 9210-2010, or you can pop us a message on Facebook. That's the Enviro Show on SAFM. Or you can uh, just send us an ordinary old email, which is enviro at safm.co.za. So stay with us. The National Arts Festival in Grahamstown runs from the 27th of June to the 7th of July. The biggest festival on the continent has 3,000 performances, including the best theatre, hottest jazz, awesome dance, great music, lectures, comedy, film, performance art, exhibitions, and much more. It's the place to be this winter. Book now at CompuTicket. Visit us online at www.nationalartsfestival.co.za. The National Arts Festival, 11 days of amazing, in partnership with SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. From 16 to 19 July 2013, the eyes of the world will be on the city of Joburg when we have the honor of hosting the prestigious Metropolis Annual Meeting in our beautiful city, under the theme, Caring Cities. The Metropolis is a meeting of world mayors who come together to discuss issues of common concern, including ways of delivering high-quality lives for their citizens. 
Apart from showcasing its world-class infrastructure, the city will also be able to showcase its heritage and tourism attractions. Joburg, proud host of world-class events, proud host of Metropolis. The Enviro Show. And here on the Enviro Show, we like our new little sting. We thought we were rather proud of that. It sounds rather spacey and environmental, we thought. So I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, let us know. Find us uh, on Facebook, The Enviro Show on SAFM. Tell us what you think. Well, first up then on the show tonight, Michelle Knights. Michelle is currently completing her PhD in cosmology at UCT. And she's just made history as the first ever FameLab South African winner. She jetted off to the UK earlier this month to represent South Africa in the International Fame Lab competition. And she made it all the way through to the international final, which took place on the 6th of June in Cheltenham. Well, Michelle uh, intrigued the judges apparently with her presentation on the use of pulsars to demonstrate gravitational waves. It's an Einstein hypothesis. And only 10 countries out of 21 made it through to the final. So well done to Michelle for earning herself a place. And we've got her on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Michelle. Hello, Michelle. Are you Hi, Nancy. Hi, congratulations. Thank you very much. Sorry, there's a slight delay because I'm in fact in Mauritius right now. Oh, well, we're not feeling terribly sorry for you at all, but that's lovely that you're in <laughs> Mauritius. On account of the delay, I'm going to ask you a question and wait for you to deliver the response so we don't keep interrupting each other. Michelle, tell us firstly, briefly, the FameLab competition is about what? Well, FEMA has been called the top idol for scientists. Of course, we don't actually sing. You get given three minutes to give a, 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 to give a talk uh, aimed at the general public on any scientific topic you want. So it's a science communication competition. But what's great about it is it's, it's like a talk you've never been to. It's, it's more like a performance than anything else. And uh, it's really all about um, bringing science alive and, and, and bringing science to everyday people. Yeah, I suppose then to make science not only accessible, but exciting. Exactly. Okay, Michelle, tell us a, li a little bit about uh, what it was that got you all the way to Cheltenham. Um, you know, it's, it's cosmology, it's gravitational waves. They're going to have to start at the beginning here and talk very simply. So tell us what it's all about. Well, um, the competition is an international competition that started about nine years ago, and this was the first time it was ever run in South Africa. So there were several rounds that we had to get through. Um, uh, so I took part in the regional heats in Cape Town, and I gave different talks uh, at each uh, sort of level of the competition. So I've talked about statistics, I've talked about this mysterious stuff in cosmology called dark energy, uh, and then the talk which got me through to the international, well, through to um, what basically, which I won with the South African final, was about exoplanets. Those are planets that orbit other stars. It would be a very exciting search for extraterrestrial life. And then I made it through to the international final, and um, there were two rounds there. And in the first round, I talked about um, gravitational waves, which are these... Uh, it's hypothetical waves, but we're fairly sure they're there, but they're hard to detect. And what it is, is the stretching and compressing of space itself caused by interactions of massive objects. These are incredible things. I mean, it's, it's an incredible concept. And uh, there's potential in the, in the coming years with technology like the Square Kilometer Array, the world's 
give telescopes being built in Africa. Um, there is potential to detect these in the future. So that got me through to the final round. I was one of uh, 10 finalists. Okay, the gravitational waves, um, your, your line is not terrific, so you, I'm just going to sort of give you the simple question. The demonstration of gravitational waves, I believe it was an Einstein hypothesis. Can you explain that? Yes, exactly. Um, so this comes from Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is if you imagine, uh, basically Einstein said space is like a fabric that can stretch. So, um, and gravity is just this bending of the fabric by massive objects. And because this, uh, this fabric can stretch, you can kind of imagine that you can make waves in the fabric, very similar to the ripples in a pond. These are the gravitational waves that we hope to detect soon, although they are very weak and difficult to detect. You know, I'm just, uh, from what I understand from what you're saying, then it, it wasn't so much the content of what you were talking about. It was how well you put it across, how exciting you made it sound. Was that really the purpose of this? Oh, well, exactly. There's, um, there's, there's three different uh, things that they judge on. It's content, clarity, and charisma. Now, um, it's difficult to put a lot of content into three minutes. And it's even more difficult to put content into a 10-second response. Um, but I try to, to tackle quite difficult concepts and, uh, and make them, uh, you know, make the average person able to understand it within those three minutes. And I definitely try to be as excited as possible. And um, I'm very excited about science, obviously. I'm very excited about science communication. And I think that that passion comes through when I, when I give these kinds of talks. The winner was a, a chap by the name of Fergus McAuliffe from Ireland who spoke about the wood frog. Were you impressed with his delivery, his, his performance? Um, yes, I, I think he was, well, okay, look, I should, I should first say that everyone there was excellent. I mean, you must understand that these were the best people from 21 different countries. So if I had to judge um, this group of people, I would not have been able to choose who should be the winner. It was, it was a very difficult decision for the judges. Um, and I, I thought Ferguson's talk was excellent. It was interesting. And it was, um, it was something that was very deep, massive. He talked about how far this frog basically dies during winter and comes back to life when it, when in spring. And the potential to try and apply that to, uh, to humans is, you know, astronomical. So uh, I thought his talk was very good, um, but the level was extremely high. He was a very passionate, brilliant science communicator. I'm very privileged to have met him. You know, I'm thinking, Michelle, perhaps when you come back uh, down to land and um, come back to South Africa, we might try and get you back on again because I think it's really interesting to hear people talking in a in a sparkly way about science. Not that it isn't exciting, it's just that sometimes those two things don't go together. Do you see your future as um, as a scientist, or do you see your future perhaps as, as somebody who's making science more appealing to others? It seems that you would have great potential to, to teach this, to pass it on. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm very passionate about both. I'm hoping to, to always be able to do research, but uh, um, I really feel like I, I, it's almost like I only remember how passionate I am about science when I'm telling it to somebody else. 
And I truly believe that science is for everyone. And as a scientist, we have a responsibility to try to communicate our science to everyone. Uh, otherwise, you know, what's the point of doing it if nobody knows about it? So I, I feel very strongly um, about communicating science. And um, I have done a lot of other science communication. I enjoy giving public talks, writing articles, things like that. Uh, and I hope to just continue to do more and more and try and get my message across. And my passion. Lovely. Well, we look forward to hearing more and more of it too. Maybe you can, uh, you know, put things into into a way that even I can understand. It'd be really nice to have you back. But in the meantime, have the most wonderful time there in Mauritius. Is it? Is it absolutely beautiful? It, it is. It's amazing. It's like paradise. It's the middle of winter here, and it's twenty four degrees and sunny every day. Wonderful. <laughs> well, we look forward to hearing more about that, Michelle. In the meantime, just have a wonderful time. Thank you very much, and once again, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nancy. Thank you, listeners. It's a pleasure. Well, that was Michelle Knights. Hope you were able to hear her just a little bit, but we do promise we'll get her back again. And in the, maybe when she comes back, she can tell us a little bit about how things are environmentally speaking there in Mauritius, because I think islands sometimes have issues, environmental issues, and uh, something we hope to hear a little bit more about right here on uh, the Enviro Show on SAFM. In fact, we plan to be talking about Centalina in the not-too-distant future, talking of islands. Well, next up, we are going to be moving to Johannesburg, as we heard a little bit earlier about their beautiful city, all sorts of things. But uh, something more, a little bit menacing about Johannesburg, you might say, are the mine dumps. Well, Jason Larkin is a British photographer. He's been living in Johannesburg for the last few years, and he's turned his camera onto these extraordinary bits of landscape to produce a book called After the Mines. Well, After the Mines has been described as a newspaper-style look at the future of the mine dumps in Johannesburg. There are some very uh, amazing pics by Jason himself and an essay by Mara Cardus Nelson. And it's also been translated into Zulu by Tandiwe Kumalo Kununtu. Well, we've got uh, the launch of the book, in fact, is happening uh, next week on the 6th of July. But we have, uh, we've got Jason on the line from England, where he is right at the moment. Hi, Jason. Hi there. Oh, you sound like you're just around the corner. Nice to have you with us. Oh, great. Jason, so you're, you've been living in South Africa for some time. Yeah, yeah. I first um, uh, visited Johannesburg in 2010 during the World Cup and uh, then moved back in late 2011 and have been living there pretty much on and off, um, yeah, until now. Okay. Was it your intention to come and move into Johannesburg or were you so taken with it that you couldn't keep away? Um, yeah, I mean... During the World Cup, uh, both me and my girlfriend just had such an incredible time. Um, and uh, I started the project then on the mine dump, so mm -hmm. I was always keen to get back. Um, my girlfriend was finishing off her studies in the U.S. And uh, then we made, both decided to, to, to make the decision to, to move. Um, uh, my girlfriend, Claire, got a, a job that was very interesting, which also sort of uh, dealt with the mines. Hmm. And, uh, and I started my, uh, my project so, um, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it's been a great experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully it's not an experience that's over just yet. But you started yeah. the project on the mines. Why? Um, I was absolutely struck by them. Um, the, the, the mine dumps, sorry, the tailings. Um, I mean, within two or three days, I had seen my first one and kind of was fairly sort of giddy and kind of like, what is that? Why is that there? What's what's happening? Why Why is the landscape all of a sudden so um, <clears throat> so perfectly sort of sculpted and, and built. What's happening with this hill? And, um, and you know, someone said, oh, it's a, it's a mine dump. 
And then I, I, I guess my imagination sort of fed off just knowing that this dump was from the remains, was the remains of the mining industry that's been happening there for the last sort of 100, 120 years. And yeah, for, from that point on, I just was fascinated. It took a while to do more research and to understand the sort of scope of how many tailings there are, um, you know, sort of understanding more about the, the history of the mining industry uh, and Johannesburg. But I guess being new to Johannesburg, I was so fascinated by that, um, all, all sort of aspects anyway. Um, but yeah, the mine dumps just came, sort of trumped all the other ideas because I'm constantly thinking about ideas and the places that I'm at and doing kind of long-form photo essays. Mm. Um, just explain to me what a tailing is. I'm sorry, I, I don't know. Well, there's, there's, I mean, a tailings dam is the kind of official word that mining companies use to describe. So there's sort of, there's, there's actually a few different variations. There's slimes dams, tailings dams, and the mine dump is kind of like a, you know, a sort of general everyday term. It's kind of like a layman's term for um, the tailings. Um, and, and tailings really just, I, I, I'm, from what I understand, is um, it's just the tail end of the, the mining waste. So, okay. it's, you know, once you've crushed the rock, um, very, very fine, finer than, um, than, than sea sand even, um, in a very short period of time, um, once you've extracted the gold through various processes that developed over time, um, and still to this day, uh, cyanide and, and, and various acids are heavily used, you then take the gold out, and then you've, you're just left with this, um, you know, the remains, and, uh, and they're put onto those tailings dams. What did you, when you, you, obviously the visual of them was what attracted you initially, but after that you started to do research. What was your objective, just to get some nice shots, or were you wanting to find out a little bit more about the, the, the workings and the legacy, if you like, of the mines? Yeah, I mean, I'm foremost a sort of visually driven person. Um, you know, there's lots of great ideas, there's lots of very interesting things to, to explore, but if they're not visual, then... As a photographer, I'm going to sort of fall flat on my face quite quite early on. Um, and for me, they were just so striking. I always, you know, associate, and I think a lot of people back in the West associate Africa and, you know, South Africa would be branded into this with sort of having a dark, rich soil, a red and brown. And um, so to see these bleached white, yellow piles of sand, to me, I could tell were very fine. Um just sort of protruding out, you know, it's very incongruous to, to the rest of the landscape. Um, and then to realize these are man-made, and then to realize these are from um, the, the mining industry that very little remains of. You mean, see some mine heads here and there, but um, to, to, to then start realizing that, you know, most of the motorways um, in southern Johannesburg, below Boysons and below city and suburban and the city, are on top of these mine dumps to realize that so many of the hills, the, the green hills, so all of a sudden I, I realized, gosh, the city is sort of, is, is, has built itself around these dumps. And, and for me, visually, you know, without even knowing too much about the history and about how important mining has been to South Africa, um, that, 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 that's interesting enough and, and will produce, you know, I knew they would produce some very interesting images. And then as I started to, explore the spaces, I, I couldn't quite believe how much I found. Um, and, and really, there's sort of three main strains that sort of go through the work, and it's mm. the informal use of them, and it's the environmental issues around them, and then it's the remining. So there's this sort of cycle. 
um, as they're being remined. But, um, yeah, the environmental side, you know, when I started to see um, some of the effects and the, the, the sort of runoff and acid mine drainage kind of can, uh, channels, it, yeah, it, to me, it just it, it seemed to be a story that wraps up a lot of um, what might be happening in, in, in South Africa at the moment. Did you do any any direct research? I mean, let's just stay with the environmental aspect for the moment. Mm. Any sort of research, particularly because it was um, it was um, Mara who I think uh, Mara Cardis Nelson who did the who wrote the essay. But what, did you get involved in any of the sort of the repercussions environmentally? Yeah, sure. No, right at the start, I was um, I, I wanted to understand um, what's the process of going through building these mine dumps. Um, and what is happening? What, 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 why is the government not doing more about what's going on environmentally? And what is happening? What do are, what are, what are experts think? So I um, interviewed uh, lots of people actually working still with mining companies. They sort of um, they test the grade of the gold or um, they test sort of uh, the, the, the earth and, and to make sure that... Because there's actually a, a framework that's set up, from what I understand, within South Africa to really stop any environmental um, degradation from, uh, you know, the mining companies and to sort of really enforce quite strict environmental um, uh, procedures. And so, yeah, I did, uh, you know, quite a, a number of these interviews. And, and also, as I was photographing things, I wasn't quite sure what it was. I would go and um, take them to, to scientists and people involved in this industry. And, uh, and then they would tell me what they believed was going on. Um, so, yeah, there, there, was, there was, you know, it was kind of in tandem um, and I couldn't obviously focus on this sort of a project I had no funding I was just doing it on my own um, so I was kind of doing it between my other sort of day job as it were my editorial photography work mm. did you were you um, prohibited from moving around the dumps I mean that you've got some very haunting pictures here I haven't seen them all but it's certainly the ones I'm looking at are, are really quite uh, well I used the word menacing earlier there's a picture mm. of 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 a man surrounded by a whole lot of hunting dogs. I mean, it looks like a painting. He looks quite. He looks. He's looking right at you. What was the situation there? Oh, that was that's um, a fascinating one. That's actually a, um, a mine dump that the M2 um, out towards uh, Soweto, just below the city, is sort of built around. Um, if motorists sort of look over to their left as they're driving down towards the city, they'll notice that the pylons and everything are built. And there's um, a group of people um, that were moved there uh, during the violence in the early 90s by their um, their company, a construction company, I believe, who had space on it. Because a lot of people have used mine dumps, you know, um, especially in, in the industrial areas uh, for factories. And there was a cinema, the Top Star Cinema, that was on top of one. Um, and so they moved them there where they had some storage space, and then they've stayed ever since. I mean, the construction company has since moved on and doesn't use that place. And they essentially are, are, are sort of squatting. Um, you know, it's a very informal setup. Um, but a, 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 a rich guy owns some dogs. They wouldn't tell me who it was. And, um, but they, they, he keeps them there on this site because... Um, there's a lot of space and they can run around and they create a lot of noise and it doesn't really bother anybody. So, yeah, it was just a sort of fascinating, fascinating little pocket of people right, you know, so close to you know, the city and, um, and all that's going on around there. And it's very quiet um, and there must be 20 or 25 um, greyhounds down there um, that are used for hunting. 
Yes, it's really quite a quite a picture. I mean, the, all of them, all of the pictures are really quite something. There's another picture just whilst we're talking about human interaction of a man who's sort of dragging a huge bag. He looks like a sort of like a like a rubbish picker, I suppose, and he's carrying mm. a big piece of cardboard, almost like a surfboard. The story there? Yeah, that's actually um, a, a big piece of metal, um, and he's one of the sort of. Um, the guys, it's at the municipal dump um, in, in southern Johannesburg. Um, it's just below the race course. Uh, and you can really see that. I mean, uh, heavens know, uh, knows why they, they decide to build a municipal dump on the top of a mine dump. Um, I guess because the land just wasn't being used and the council decided they need a space to, to, to put the waste. Um, so, yeah, this is um, uh, a municipal rubbish dump on top of a rubbish dump, on top of a mine dump, sorry. And, and these guys, they go through, they're allowed to go on and, 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 and sort of recycle uh, materials from there, and they earn their living through that. I mean, you, you see that all over Johannesburg, but these guys just stay on that, and they just wait for the sort of truckloads to come from across the city. The, the mine dumps themselves, I mean, I, do, I, don't, I don't know specifically, but it is thought that there are quite a lot of toxins actually inside them. Did you have any effects while you were walking around taking your pics? No, 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 not at all. I mean, yeah, there, there's, you know, there's unanimously, um, you know, not nasty substances in there. Um, the sort of the cyanide, the, the acids, the, the heavy metals are exposed are all, you know, recorded um, and, and, and proven to be in this earth. The acid mine drainage is, you know, really one of the biggest problems I think Houteng is facing uh, going into the future. But, um, I mean, 400,000 people, um, around 400,000 people live on or around old mining sites across Johannesburg. Um, so, you know, I, I visited numerous communities that live directly on these mine dumps. You know, they're their beds on top of just thin pieces of carpet with the sand directly underneath. Um, and, 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 and within those situations, yeah, you definitely start to realize that people have breathing problems, um, you know, uh, and, and other respiratory diseases. And um, that it just, it's, it's, um, it's, it's amazing that not more studies are done, not more studies um, have been worked out on what these people's situation, what is their health um, ramifications mm -hmm. of living in these spaces. But me, myself, I, you know, apart from lots of dust in my shoes after each, each shoe, I, I was fine. Jason, lovely. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for drawing attention to it. And it's, isn't it ironic? Sometimes, you, you know, look at something that is, is potentially quite... Um, Quite, a, quite a, an awkward thing, or some say a blight on the landscape, and you've produced some very, very beautiful pictures, and how ironic is that? But it's published by Fourth Wall Books. I'm going to give out their website, Jason, I think if anybody would like to know more, but we can give out your website as well, which is jasonlarkin.co.uk. Yep. Excellent. Good. Well, hurry back to Johannesburg. They're all waiting for you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. Pleasure. Jason Larkin, he's a photographer, and if you'd like to see the book, it's called After the Mines. You can check Jason's own site, which is jasonlarkin.co.uk, or if you'd like to find out more about Fourth Wall, who actually published the book, it's called uh, it's www.fourthwallbooks.com, fourthwallbooks.com. The Enviro Show. And don't forget, we will put all those details up on our Facebook page on the Enviro Show on SAFM. So if you are not able to get anywhere other than that, that would be the place to start. 
Well, next up, some good news. Green Sabenza is a project that was launched recently by the Minister of Environmental Affairs, Edna Molewa. And uh, the aim behind it, I think, is to unlock the potential benefits of a green economy. And in these days of unemployment, what a good idea. Well, we've got project manager on the line, Donovan Fuller, to tell us all about it. Hi, Donovan. Uh, Good evening, Nancy. Good. Thank you very much for your time. Um, Green Sabenza, Donovan, just explain to us exactly what it is. I mean, I think I'm talking about it as a a green economy, but I think it's got all sorts of layers to it. Explain. Yes. Uh, First of all, it's called the Green Sabenza um, Project. Okay. Um, And it's an exciting pilot project um, that it's a government jobs fund project that is funded by the Development Bank of Southern Africa to the tune of 300 million. And it's an innovative partnership project that was, uh, as you indicated, officially launched by the Minister of Water and Environmental Affairs on the 8th of June this year. And the aim of the project is, is, uh, is developing skills and bridging the gap between education and job opportunities in the biodiversity sector. And it involves the placement of 800 unemployed youth in skilled, uh, skilled jobs across the public, private and non-governmental institutions in the local biodiversity sector for a period of two and a half years. And we're looking at um, recruiting of the 800, 500 graduates and 300 school leavers with a matric certificate um, to be placed with these um, partner organizations. And there's currently about 33 uh, of these partners within the sector that's involved in the project. Okay, so 500 graduates... Uh, tertiary graduates, I'm assuming, and 300 yes. school leavers. Yes, that's correct. Okay. The sort of skills that you're giving them are what? I mean, are there jobs at the end of it, and what you're doing is training them up so that they can fill those jobs, or are you giving them sort of broader training and then see what comes out of it? How does it actually work? Yeah, uh, the, the project focuses on training. Um, uh, training is a big component of, of the program. Um, also mentoring and then work workplace-based learning uh, with the objective of building a pool of young and capable professionals for our biodiversity sector in South Africa. And through this, we aim to boost the job creation in the green economy. Um, so the project is based on the, the incubator concept, um, which, ha- which has been applied successfully in other contexts, um, but has never been tried in the environmental sector. So the incubator sort of goes beyond the normal single of agency where we, we um, compared to the six to twelve month internship program that we have to provide a, a network extended skills development scheme over two and a half um, year period. So we the the biodiversity human capital development strategy um, showed for the sector showed that there was a shortage of skills to manage biodiversity in the in the country, coupled with as well as historical inequalities in the sector. And therefore, this program has been initiated to respond to that demand in the sector, um, identified by the various research um, efforts that, that have been conducted. So we are looking at critical skills um, within the sector, and here I'm referring to knowledge of and ability to work with a growing sort of array of policies and legislation within the sector. We're talking about things such as um, advocacy, social learning facilitation, management skills, project management skills, technical skills, uh, integration skills, and the ability to work, work in, in various contexts uh, context as well. So um, what we've um, advertised uh, based on this research are jobs that um, these 
participants will be skilled to intern. And for school leavers, we're looking at things like um, community facilitation, field ranges, environmental education systems, um, um, training site monitors, data capturers. For graduates, we're looking at atmospheric modelers, biodiversity monitoring officers, um, yeah, if I can just interrupt there, it, it sounds like, you know, advocacy, facilitation, technical skills, it sounds like there's a lot of skills that aren't necessarily applicable only to the green economy. Yes, no, no, there's a range of skills, and I've just mentioned a few um, okay. to you, but there's a whole range that, 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 that are linked to the green economy. Um, if one looks at, at, at climate change and, 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 and environmental impact assessment, um, they're all linked to, 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 to biodiversity, um, resource economics, and, and so on. So I do think that it's linked to the, to the green economy. Yeah, yeah. Just going back to the, you know, the, the, um, the bridge or the gap, as you say, between education and actually finding a job at the end, do those jobs exist yet that these young people may be able to go into? Yeah, what we have, um, we we have, like I said, we have a range of partners on board, and they range from from agencies within uh, within this, the sector, such as Sandpark, Isambelo, Kaiserin Wildlife, Cape Nature, your your NGOs such as WSA, WWS, and so on. And some of these partners have committed um, themselves to the project, and and one of the key conditions was that they that jobs. That they can actually promise jobs at the end of the two and a half year, two and a half year period, so that these uh, um, youngsters can be absorbed into into jobs. So these vacancies have been identified as as, as the gaps in mm-hmm. these organisations, um, including all your government, um, provincial and local government entities that are on board. So um, we've got committed currently of the 800 um, positions that it's hoping to fill. 421 of these positions have, have been committed by these partners as post the two-and-a-half-year um, period that they will be able to absorb these these young um, people within permanent jobs beyond the is project. It, the, the first 800, is it going to be an ongoing project? I mean, presumably you've already got your first 800, but can people look at the website and apply for the next intake? Well, this is, this is like I indicated, this is a pilot project. Okay. So we have started the recruitment process in January for the first 800. We're currently at 565. So uh, most of these positions have been advertised, but we still have um, the remainder of the positions to be filled, which we're hoping to do that within the next two, two months. So people can look at our website, which is www.sandbi.org.za. For, for further uh, um, adverts to be placed. Okay, I'm going to give out that detail once again. And, and you made the point that it's called Hrun Sebenza, not, not Green Sebenza, yes. because it's a combination of Afrikaans and Isisulu. Is Afrikaans that, and Isisulu, mm, yes. Is that to, to make sure everybody feels included? Uh, the, the, that's the whole idea. You know, the, 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 young, the young people of, of today, they, they like to mix the language and also, you know, the, the inclusivity aspects, you know, having the Afrikaans, and 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 and, and yeah. Zulu, um, combination, and also this program is, by, uh, is targeted at the rural youth. Um, they, 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 that's one of the strong, or one of the key, um, you know, criteria that yeah. that uh, was part of the recruitment process that we target uh, the unemployed youth in, in the rural areas. Yeah. So, so yeah.
Good. Well, let me give out the details once again. I'll give out the website once again if anybody would like to uh, avail themselves or check it out and find out a little bit more. Lovely. Donovan, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank, thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care. Donovan Fullard, he's project manager of Sebenza, in fact, which means uh, green work. Um, I think, yes, green work. And if you'd like to find out more, it's on the Sanbi website, which is sanbi, S-A-N-B-I dot org dot Z-A. And we will put that up on our Facebook page as well. That's sanbi dot org dot Z-A. Well, next here on the Enviro Show, we're going to be looking at, and I wish we were all going along too because it sounds very exciting, an expedition called T2T, which is Titsikama to Tatooine. It's an expedition happening later on in the year, around about October, I think. And the idea is, well, actually there are many different principles, but one of the principles behind it is to make a difference one school food garden at a time. Tracy Angus Hammond is going to be part of the expedition, and we got her on the line to explain it all. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. Tracy. whose idea was this? Um, well, it was the teams. Um, the three of us have always been very, very passionate about Africa and had the opportunity to see a different side to Africa than that's usually portrayed in the media. And we've always been very passionate about sharing that. And so from that, this kind of just grew. So the three of us, that's yourself and? Yes, myself. And then I've got two other partners, Ishtar Lakani and Matthew Angus Hammond, who happens to be my husband. <laughs> Okay. And you're taking off, I think, in October. Yes, 5th of October. And the, and the plan is to go, I mean, who knew about a place called Tatooine? <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, the set of the Star Wars scene. So one of the nights we'll be send, spending in Luke Skywalker's house. Well, that's very exciting. <laughs> so you're starting in Titsukama and all the way through to Tatooine. How long is this going to take? And, and I, I mentioned that there are, you know, there are a number of principles, a number of, yes. of ideas that you have about this. Just explain. Um, Yes, we're going to be doing this over 165 days. And the three main goals are, first of all, to help people to see Africa differently, so expose them to all sorts of information that they might not get otherwise. The second, as you mentioned, is to make a sustainable difference along the way that communities can get involved in as well, so rather working together than as opposed to four. And so we'll be creating, on average, two school food gardens per country. And then the final thing is that we are three social... um, uh, uh, we've all studied social things at university. Sorry, my words have lost me completely. We're anthropologists and sociologists. And so we've all been interested in the measure of poverty and how useful that is in a continent that's so dominated by an informal economy. And so what we'd like to do is live on a dollar twenty-five a day in six locations and through that sort of explore this uh, measure a little bit more and possibly offer some alternatives along the way at the end. That particular aspect will be very interesting. Certainly you'll be minimising your consumerism and, and presumably <laughs> uh, reducing your, your carbon footprint. Absolutely, yes. So that's, uh, will you be monitoring this? Will you be um, annotating it all along the way? Absolutely, yes. We're going to be blogging along the way. We're going to be making videos along the way. We're going to be taking photos of absolutely everything along the way. And we're also inviting anyone who wants to get involved to come along. Um, We've got the list of the garden locations and dates and times. So if anyone wants to actually get involved and get their hands dirty, we'd love that as well, of course. Um, when you say come along, are you suggesting there's room in your truck? Or are you uh, saying no. that they've got to make their own you'd have to be at one of the locations okay. and join us there. <laughs> okay. We'll come back to the $1.25 a day in just a minute. But the, the bit that appealed to us was the idea of the food gardens. Um, and I think that you're trying to raise funds to create these food gardens. Just give us a bit more of a story there. Absolutely. We've been very privileged to work with Funder Funder 
uh, Fund a Fund, sorry, which is um, South Af- Africa's very first crowdfunding platform. Um, and we're working with them to get together a minimum amount of 13500 which we've achieved in the first two weeks, so we're very pleased with that. Um, the next target is 45000 and with that 45000 that enables us then to purchase the seeds and the organic fertilizer that we would need to create these 45 gardens. And then our big milestone, sort of the, the best that this project could be, would be a 225000 rand target, which would allow us to get the seedlings, the host pipes, and organic fertilizer, so then cover all aspects of that. Ooh, so if you can get to 45,000, is that going to give you enough money to get enough seeds and organic fertilizer uh, on site, or are you going to take them all with you? Um, no, we definitely will be getting everything on site. Um, part of the reason is transportation, and we don't mm. want to have a massive carbon footprint um, taking the seeds along with us the entire way. But um, in addition to that, we need to make sure that all the seeds are viable um, in the sort of climate that they're in, and we have to also make sure that they're culturally appropriate. And so all of that needs to be taken into account as well in the planning, which necessitates that we have to get the seeds when and where we're there. Um, so some of it will be purchased. And we are also working with other sponsors. We've got another Sponsor a Day program where people can get involved in leaving tools behind so that, of course, we've got a, a spade um, and diggers, etc., so that the garden really is something that carries on beyond just our, our journey. The seeds, I'm presuming, if you're looking to get organic fertilizer, presumably you'll be wanting to make sure that the seeds are not genetically modified? Yes, we will be. Okay. Have you got, um, have you got sources? I mean, have you got a network of people? You can't just sort of arrive in yes. Tatooine, for instance, or any, any along the places along the way and, and find a source of seeds, because it, I don't know how long you plan to stay in each and every one of these uh, locations, but yeah. it... Presumably, we'll take some little while to get all this stuff together. Absolutely. I mean, we've been planning for four years now, so this is not something that's just happened mm. overnight. Mm. Um, that's been part of building up the network. Um, but in addition to that, we've all been fortunate to work and live in other countries outside of South Africa and the rest of the continent. So we do have on-the-ground mm. networks already. We've lived in Nairobi. We've lived in Accra. We've worked in over 20 countries between the three of us. And so we do have a great network of people we know we've worked with before and we'll be making use of that. Gosh, it, it certainly does sound like something you've uh, had your finger on for quite some time. <laughs> the actual planting of the gardens, will you stay? Will you identify schools? Have you already identified schools? Yes, and um, we have started that process already. Not all 45 have been identified, but we have identified most of them. Um, we've got people on the ground who will be joining us. We'll actually be camping at those schools while we're busy doing the garden. Um, and so we will be intimately involved. In addition to that, we will be keeping tabs on the gardens afterwards. So anyone who does pledge with us or is interested can go back in three months' time and check on the progress of that carrot that they helped plant. Two things, very briefly, from the other two points. Um, living on uh, $1.25 a day, I'm not sure what the exchange rate is at the moment, but roughly how much is that? That would probably be about 18 rand at the moment. Is that ahead? Yes. Okay. Do you, yes. Is it doable? Um, yes, definitely. Um, again, we are doing this in cities where we do have networks, because, of course, if you live in a city, you wouldn't be a complete stranger. Um, so we're going, for instance, back to Nairobi, where we know. Um, but we will be, that will have to cover our accommodation, our transport, our food, our communication, absolutely everything that's required for the day. Um, and also then, of course, interacting with a lot of other people who do that, do that on a daily basis and looking at those coping strategies and working out how much more the informal economy adds to that, how much more their network creates to that, how 
the sort of the concept of Ubuntu works in this entire measure, which is something we think is left out at the moment. And just the very first point that you mentioned, you it's a way of having people see Africa differently. Different, different from what? Um, differently from sort of the, the portrayals of corruption and poverty and backwardness. Um, we've know a continent that's very different from that, that's vibrant, that's full of innovation, that's growing faster than we see anywhere else. Um, and we want to expose more people to that side so that not only do we start to see Africa differently, but we start to interact with Africa differently. And that has to start with us as, as Africans. And I, I often sadly think that we need to see Africa differently more than even outsiders. 165 days, something like 30,000 kilometers. You're going to be on speed, all of you. <laughs> yes, it's going to be quite a busy mm. trip, but certainly no holiday. There's a lot to get done. Um, we want to make a big difference along the way, and so going to make as much use of every minute that we've got. So if anybody would like to help you out and, and in some way just offer whatever they can, they can. They, your, your crowdfunding, it's Thunder Fund, which is T-H-U-N-D-A-F-U-N-D dot com. If you go to that website, is it fairly easy? Is it easily navigable? Absolutely. There's an Explore the Projects tab, and you'll see our projects along there with the six other projects. Um, and you just click, and all the details of how you can get involved are there. And those include non-financial. This is... It's not just about money. We'd like to get people involved full stop, and there's lots of details and other ways that you can get involved as well. Okay, so 165 days, 24 countries, three, three friends, and 30,000 kilometers odd. 13,500 you raised very quickly. What are you, what are you standing at now? And we're sitting at 18,500 rand, so we're really, really pleased. Sorry, 19, we've just got another one. The count has just ticked up. Oh, gosh, ka-ching, as they say. Maybe somebody just heard me say Thunder Fund. I'm well, going to say it so. again. I'm going to say it again and again. <laughs> Lovely. Well, Tracy Angus uh, Hammond, very best of luck, and I hope that all goes well, and I hope Thank you, you so certainly much. make Thanks that for having difference. Pleasure. Take Bye. care. Tracy Angus Hammond, well, if you would like to be part of that, and it doesn't have to be only about finance if you want to you know share some of your enthusiasm for the project why don't you check it out uh it's a thunder fund www.thunder t-h-u-n-d-a-f-u-n-d.com and you'll find out all about it and we will put the link up on our facebook page yes we, in fact if we haven't already done it it will be done any second you're listening to the Enviro Show right here on SAFM. And don't forget anything you'd like to share with us, certainly in terms of green goodies. Around about this time on the show each and every week, we feature a green goodie, somebody who's doing something that's really good for the environment or the planet or the people and the animals who live right on it. Let us know. It's Enviro, Enviro at safm.co.za or Facebook, the Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, next up, we thought, seeing as on account of the, the weather having turned a little bit cold, actually, it's been really quite a nice day here in Cape Town, but nonetheless, it has been a little bit chilly. We thought we would look at the best and most economical way to heat your water, either by heat pump or solar geyser. And to explain, to tell us uh, very simply, we have Christo Koch on the line, and he is with an organisation called One Energy. Hi, Christo. Hi, good evening, Nancy. Nice to have you with us. Okay, so water heating, um, yeah, it it's, it's, it's can be a very, very expensive thing to do. Give us an idea of why it's so expensive, first of all. Well, Nancy, um, currently the most um, or the easiest way to heat up your geyser is with a, your water is with an electrical geyser. And uh, purely your electrical geyser is in a one-to-one -one ratio, your electricity to heat uh, exchange, basically. So, uh, for example, a 150-litre geyser will use 3 kilowatts of electricity per hour to generate 3 kilowatts of heat per hour. Okay. 
So that is the quickest and most efficient, or at least well, it's we quick, won't it's say efficient, yes, but so that's well efficient your, in the way most of, common way to to heat up your water. Yeah. Just give me that equation again. One hundred and fifty liter geyser take three kilo kilowatts uh, of electricity. Uh, it's got a three kilowatt element in, which uses three kilowatts of electricity per hour to generate three kilowatts of heat per hour. Okay. But it's not the most energy efficient way. Definitely not. <laughs> okay. Give us the options. All right. Well, we can, we can look at the solar systems that, is, um, that, that uh, generate heat from the sun. So it's basically free energy that you use. And then the other option is, of course, uh, with a heat pump, which still uses electricity, but the ratio of heat to electricity or electricity to heat is much less. And it's also not dependent on sun. Okay. So that is basically the two different options on that. Okay, let's start with the solar system. That it's heat from the sun. Uh, it's sun. It's free energy, but it is nonetheless going to cost you whatever it's going to cost you to install all the necessary equipment. That's correct. Yes. Uh, the most important thing to remember: uh, sun is not instant heat. So basically, you have to see what is your demand to make sure that you get the right size system. Uh, otherwise, your system won't be efficient, and it's still going to have to kick back to the uh, electrical backup element. And so if your system is sized wrongly, then you're basically going to kick back to electricity most of the time again, and you're back at square one. Mm. Can you give us an idea? I mean, I always sort of a little bit wary about saying for the average household because there's no such thing as an average household. We've got mansions and shacks, and you know, to, to look at. But say, say a, a sort of two-bedroomed house uh, with maybe four people living in it, or whatever, um, would be would require what sort of size? We we divide it into income areas as well. So we, if we look at a lower income area, let's uh, or a lower demand area, let me call it that rather, uh, where people use a very little, maybe showers, uh, not baths, and then you go up to a normal uh, residential with municipality area where you got uh, baths and showers, and then the more higher usage areas, uh, guest houses, hotels. So in the average household, we work on an electrical geyser or on a heat pump, roughly, just to give you an idea how to size the system, on 50 liters per person per day, plus about another 50 liters for household use. If you're going to look at solar systems, we try to up the volume a little bit so that you have more volume, that the system won't kick back to electricity so quickly, that the sun can do its work. Uh, so there we look at roughly 75 to 100 liters per person. Okay. So just, let's move on to the heat pump. Just explain to us how, how the heat pump works differently from the solar system. All right. Uh, the solar, like I said, is dependent on sun, where the heat pump uses ambient temperature. So it's not dependent on sun. Um, so thatch roofs where you can't put solar or houses that's got lots of shade, that is where ideally the heat pump or uh, high volume of water usage, that is where the heat pump will come in nicely. And uh, how it basically works is on a, based on an air conditioner system where we use the, uh, the, the hot cycle of the unit. And it works roughly to one kilowatt of electricity to uh, four, uh, four kilowatts of heat roughly. 
And uh, so if you compare it with a 200-liter geyser, where you have a 4-kilowatt element using 4 kilowatts of electricity per hour, a 4-kilowatt heat pump will roughly use 1 kilowatt of electricity per hour but generate 4 kilowatts of heat. Is that, is that the way that you would lean towards then using a heat pump? Well, like I say, it depends on the, the, the uh, um, demand that you have. Mm. If you uh, um, want two people in the house, then you're going to scale your solar system correctly. If your roof allows it, we're looking at for, to get a north-facing roof to get uh, the maximum sun exposure. Um, and, but if you're going to go to, let's say, six people in the house, then you will rather lean towards the heat pump because your demand is much higher. Or if your roof or your house is in a very shady area that you don't have enough sun, then you also will rather go towards the heat pump. So both of them do have the, the, the um, place in the sun, yeah. can I call it that. Yeah, it's quite literally. Is it a very costly business to install a heat pump? Look, you, you um, look roughly from 10,000 upwards on, on a heat pump system, but also a proper solar system that they, they compare very good. The prices is very similar. And uh, at this stage, the ESKIM rebate helps a little bit, but we just received notice that the ESKIM rebate might come to an end. And uh, so people must, must jump to make use of this uh, offer. <laughs> I suppose that the most important thing is to think twice about your electrical geyser, which, you know, whilst it might be quick, is certainly not the uh, the most energy efficient. That is correct, yeah. yeah. And it's also not dependent on sun, so you can use it day and night. Mm. And that is the problem with a solar system. If it's not sized correctly, it will lose temperature very quickly as you draw, draw off hot water. And then it's going to kick back to the electrical element in the system as a backup unit. And uh, you will uh, still use a, you'll still get a high electrical bill. Yeah. I imagine that the most important thing is that you know, obviously, one's not necessarily going to sort of install something like this yourself. Is to get somebody to come round, somebody like you, to come round and say, okay, this is the system that's going to work best for you, and and give you the spell it all out for you, give you the equation. That is correct. Yes, to get a, a reputable company, people that know what they're doing, and they also um, members of, for example, we got a couple of. Uh, uh, like CESA is one of our uh, company or, or body corporate that we uh, joined with that uh, tells you which is a reputable company. CESA, is that S-E? CESA is also one of them. They uh, CESA and then also uh, to get an installer that's registered as a, a, a installer, a plumbing installer, you see. Yeah, CESA is uh, S-E? Uh, the CESA the is your... It's S-E, what are the letters? It's S-E-S-S-A. S-E-S-S-A. Yeah, okay. that is the sustainable um, energy uh, association of South Africa. Okay, well done, <laughs> you, you caught me off guard there. <laughs> but yes, it's they, late at um, night they and we uh, a lot run from... the, the energy efficiency um, program and, and, and uh, okay. the board, uh, the corporate. Lovely. All right, Chris O'Cock, thank you very much. I'm going to give out your website as well if anybody would like to know more. Thank you. Take thank care. Thank you very much. Chris O'Cock is with www.oneenergy.co.za. We're going to put that up on our Facebook page as well as CESA, whatever it may stand for. You'll be able to get the link right here on uh, the Enviro Show um, Facebook page. Well, we're all battling with our words. It's certainly late at night. And poor old Stephen Kirker is going to be with you for even longer, and I'm sure he won't be battling with his words at all. <laughs> 
<laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs>